Well, uh, welcome everybody uh, to uh, our time this morning. I hope you're you're doing well. I want to begin, uh, if we could, uh, we're in chapter 25, as you know. I want to begin again with that oracle, um, that prophecy, that statement that the Lord makes responding to Rebecca, since her two boys inside of her, she's pregnant, as you know, with twins, uh, it says they struggled together within her. I, I commented last week, that word, Hebrew word that we're translating, struggle in verse 22, is a very intense verb. It's a crushing, oppressing, so she really would have noticed this. And she asks the Lord what's going on, and the Lord says to her, I'm in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. That will be worked out, let me rephrase that, that will be illustrated in verses 27 through 34, which we're now going to study. This um, this contrast between Esau, the firstborn, and Jacob, the heel catcher, because Jacob, Jacob is a uh, Jacob is a very important proper name, but it comes from a word that is not good. I mean, it's not a positive word. It's a heel catcher, deceiver, deceptive manipulator, and that's Jacob. That will be his character. And God is going to have to deal with that. But you start to see it, that is, that character trait, in contrast to Esau's. And so what is set up for us in the, in the verses that follow, 24 through the end of this chapter, is the contrast between these two sons of Isaac. These two sons that represent the um, fulfillment the working out of that divine oracle, that divine response to Rebecca's question, Lord, what's going on in my womb? (laughs) So verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first one came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and they called his name Esau. Esau means red. Afterward, his brother came with his hand holding Esau's heel, So his name is called Jacob, Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now that is a piece of information. It's a fact, but we're going to learn a little bit later on why that is somewhat important. That is that Isaac is 60. Okay, now we went through some of that last week, but I want to kind of start again to make sure you're anchored in what um, what is the difference between these two boys. Then verse 27 and 28, there's a great deal of information here, a a significant contrast, an aggressive hunter versus a reflective nomad. I'll repeat that again. The contrast is between an aggressive hunter and a reflective nomad. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, if you, if you were to set this up kind of like on a chart, you would relate skillful hunter with quiet man. You would relate a man of the field with dwelling in tents. These, these, words, um, these words are so important 
in, in, in setting up the contrast between this cunning, shrewd, aggressive hunter and this dweller of tents, this reflective nomad. Esau is a sportsman. He's rough. He's wild. He's free. He's boisterous. He's exciting. Jacob, he's kind of boring. He's a settled man. He's stable. He's quiet. He's thoughtful. He's civilized. The word that we see in, um, in this description of, of Jacob, that Jacob was a quiet man, a dwelling, one who dwells in tents. Quiet could be translated even-tempered. So these are not necessarily negative statements about, about Jacob, but it's a very significant contrast. Jacob, Jacob has it much more together than Esau does. And yet the next section, it looks like Jacob manipulates through a duplicitous scheme the birthright out of Esau. But that's not the point. The point is Esau. That's the point. So with these descriptive statements, we see verse 28, a simple sentence that warrants the conclusion this is a very dysfunctional family. <laughs> Jacob, excuse me, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That's a very important piece of information for what happens in verse 29. And uh, next chapter uh, after this. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So you have the parents divided. And it tells us that Isaac, or rather Esau, is probably a lot more like Isaac. He's a hunter. He's kind of boisterous. He's fun-loving. He's the kind of guy who's wild and free, so to speak. Where Jacob is much more reflective, much more focused, um, much more even-tempered. And that's what Rebecca likes. There's a very, very divided, dysfunctional family. You know, the one, and I'm, you all are either raising your kids or you've raised your kids. You know, it is really not wise for a parent to play favorite with one of the kids. That is not a wise thing to do. <laughs> you can sort of do that, but it, boy, there can be consequences. And so we're just alerted to this is not a stable family. So, I mean, we hear a lot about their temperament. We don't hear anything about their spiritual. Good. Is there some reason for that? Or would we assume that they are equally strong in their faith? Uh, No, we would not conclude that. Neither one is very strong in their faith. Jacob's is going to have to be developed. Esau will basically reject it. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not when I made that response to your question and when I in the comments I'm not saying that I know everything that's going on in Esau's heart. Right. I, I can't necessarily but everything that Esau does evidences a man who is probably not walking with God. He is the father of the Edomites, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And the Edomites were just like him. Free, boisterous, aggressive, and the Edomites will become an historic enemy of Israel. 
which is this this is really an important um, insight that we're gaining here of the origin of one of the significant enemies of Israel for the next. Well, they are wiped out when Nebuchadnezzar destroys Babylon, so 586 B.C. We're roughly 2000 B.C. So, I mean, as the Lord was looking at both of these young men, mm-hmm. was he kind of looking at raw material that he could do something with, or how would you... Well, it tells us at the end of verse 23 in the oracle that God chose the younger over the older. God chose him. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul picks up on this and says, God chose Jacob over Esau because it says God loved Jacob but hated Esau. And that's always a very difficult word to translate. We say hate because you and I think of that emotion of hate. It is, it's more of, of the term of God rejected Esau. That's more of that meaning of hate. So, Jim, it isn't so much as God is looking, okay, now, let me figure out here which one of these guys would be the best. Uh-uh. God chose Jacob, period. It doesn't tell us why, and that's what Paul's point in Romans 9. Don't try to figure out why God chose Jacob. It says Jacob, or uh, yeah, why God chose Jacob. It says God loved Jacob and God hated Esau. That's what it tells us. It doesn't have anything to do with God. In other words, now I'm really going down a bunny trail here. It's raising the question, when God makes a decision to do something, is it contingent on us? Is he waiting around to see how we respond to something? Then, okay, now I'll act. Or is God's sovereignty of such depth that God decides, period, for reasons that he does not necessarily explain to us? Now, I know I'm probably not answering your question, but I, I'm giving more of a theological spin to it because of how Paul picks up on this in, in the book of Romans. So it's just really God's grace. Of- it is. It's God, it really is. Was, as you were going to, we're going to start reading, there's another little chapter, the next chapter on Isaac, but then, then Jacob comes on the center stage. And as we read about Jacob, the more you read about Jacob, the more you say, this guy was a real rascal. I mean, this guy was not, I mean, he was not a good dad. His walk with the Lord was thoroughly inconsistent. And he was very duplicitous, very deceptive, very manipulative, very controlling. And we got to wait till Genesis 32, till God breaks Jacob. He will break him of this temperament. And he will limp for the rest of his life because of what God does to him. But I love how you put that. That is true of all of these patriarchs. I mean, even Abraham. But God's grace is all over these stories. It isn't because these guys are worth it. I mean, Isaac isn't worth it. it, it, Jacob is not worth it. But that's not the point. God, in his grace, chooses And every one of you around this table, you are a trophy of God's grace. Amen. It's not because you earned it. I'm such a good boy that God finally patted me on the head and said, come on in. That is not how God, that isn't, every one of us is just, it's, um, 
And so I just I like how you put that's a great way to bring bring this little bunny trail to conclusion. This is all about God's grace. It isn't that one of them is better than the other one, that one of them deserves it. They're not, they're both they both have significant character flaws. <laughs> but it's now remember this is what we're gonna see this now in this next section, verse twenty uh, verse twenty nine following. Remember, the focus of this book is on the covenant. That's the focus. And so the question now is, Jacob knows the covenant. Esau knows the covenant. But Esau has a flippant, very insignificant view of the worth and value of the covenant. He's about to surrender his birthright for a bowl of soup. Can you think of any more contemptible way to treat a covenant promise than that? That's the point. Verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, now, it seems as if we should infer that Jacob is setting this whole thing up. He knows that every day Esau goes out and hunts. And when Esau comes back from hunting, he eats. So Jacob says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to make my special soup. And I'm going to have it cooking the moment he comes into the tent. So the very first thing he smells is that soup. Because Jacob had become a student of his brother. He had watched his brother. He knew the pattern of his brother. He's now going to manipulate and control his the events. So his priority, which is to get the birthright. Now, God had told his mother that the older will serve the younger. So Jacob knows, I am positive, if Rebecca loves Jacob, that Rebecca said to him, Jacob, my boy, you are going to be the one that's going to inherit everything from daddy, from Isaac. You are going to get the birthright. You are going to get all the blessings. And he, and he says, but mommy, Esau is the firstborn. Esau's going to get all this. And she says, no, Jacob, you are. And so Jacob, and possibly at the suggestion of mommy, Jacob start making Esau's favorite soup. So when he comes in from hunting, he smells it. So what's Jacob doing? He's getting what God promised to him and God decreed for him and God established for him his way. I'm going to get it my way. And he will do that in chapters 27. He will get what God had promised his way. See, the character flaw of Jacob, he's a manipulator, a conniver, a control freak who wants their terrible terms that come from the 21st century, but they fit where Jacob is. He will do it his way. 
and there will be significant consequences in his life. But God will still, in his amazing grace, bless Jacob. So, he's cooking this stew. So, I'm, what I'm trying to say is this don't think, oh, Jacob just decided one morning he's going to wake up and cook some stew. No, 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 no. This is part of a scheme that he's been thinking about, and probably, again, with some strong counsel from his mother. Wait. Assuming that I just picked up the Bible and opened it up to Genesis, and I'm reading this all by myself, and we don't have a Bible study, how would I get to get that message that you just suggested about Jacob being the conniving? And yes, I, I, I know that. Further, because further of, because of what we know about Jacob's character and his behavior between this chapter and chapter 32. Okay. I mean, it's just, it's, and I, I, you're right, I have the whole picture, and you're getting the whole picture, so that by the time we're done with the whole picture, you'll be able to say Ekman was right. <laughs> but it's, uh, so I am, I, you are right, and I, 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 I don't mean to be uh, unfair here, but if it's all right that I do share all this, is, is that okay? Because... It helps to bring meaning out to what is really, really going on here. And so, okay, can I go into that? Okay, so verse 29. So Esau comes in from the field, and he was exhausted. He'd been hunting all day. Presumably, he wasn't successful. I mean, it doesn't tell us that, but we're assuming it. And Jacob said to Jacob, this is great, let me eat some of the red stew. Now, that phrase, let me eat, it, it's it's a Hebrew idiom, and it really you could really accurately try, let me gulp this down. I'm so hungry. <laughs> but I'm gonna gulp it down. And the red stew is literally this red stuff. I'm so hungry. I'm so exhausted. I want to gulp down this red stuff. For I'm exhausted. So you know, it, it, you can just I don't know. You can just see Jacob knew his brother. He knew exactly what Esau was going to do. And Esau, true to form, the free, boisterous, exciting, rough, wild sportsman. I'm hungry. Give me some of that stuff. I mean, can't you see a NASCAR racer who's come in from Alaska mountains starving? I want to gulp down that red stuff and give it to me. Now, I want you to notice, I'm sure all of your translations have the next sentence of verse 30 in parentheses. Therefore... His name was called Edom. And you say, wait a minute. His name is Esau. But see what's going to happen. We'll read about this later in the book of Genesis. Esau will flee Beersheba and go south, really kind of southeast, and will settle in the mountains south of the Dead Sea. And that will be called Edom. I've been to Israel many times, and we're at the Red Sea, and we look south. The mountains of Edom, the mountains south of the Dead Sea, they look red. Mm. And they are absolutely red. And that, so, you know, on which comes first. But all Moses is doing here, because remember, the first readers of this book are the Israelites who come out of Egypt. And all of this they're familiar with. And Moses is just saying, in parentheses, now remember... He's also Edom, the founder of the Edomites. Remember those guys? When we were coming up along the Dead Sea from Egypt and headed into Jordan, they wouldn't let us go through their territory. 
That's where the Edomites came from. So just like Esau are the Edomites. They're rough, boisterous, free. Oh, got it. All Moses is doing in parentheses is sharing, make the connection between Esau and the Edomites because he's the father of the Edomites. And the, the Israelites would shake their head and say, yes, I remember. I remember how they treated us. And what is going to happen throughout the rest of Israel's history until Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem in 586 when he destroys the Edomites too. Because Edomites will then, well, that's another story. So it's just, it's really interesting how this is, how this is unfolding in the story. So Jacob then said in verse 31, sell me your birthright now. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That's kind of stunning. It's certainly audacious and not bold. He's been cooking the soup. It smells great. He's exhausted and hungry, his brother, and says, I'll tell you what, Esau, the price of this bowl of soup is your birthright. And you can just imagine Jacob thinking, I can't believe it's going to be this easy. <laughs> I just can't believe it's going to be this easy. But he, had, he knew his brother. He had watched his brother. And again, it doesn't tell us. I can't imagine Rebecca in some way wasn't involved in, in helping him think through this. It is absolutely shocking how Esau responds. Verse 32. I am about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? Oh my goodness. What does he mean by I am about to die? That's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. He says I'm so hungry. Yeah, I'm just so hungry. I'm about to die. You know, I'm so hungry I'm going to die. You know, I... If I don't soon eat, I'm going to die. That's hyperbole. You know, if you've eaten this morning and now you're starved and it's the middle of the afternoon, you're not going to die. It's hyperbole. But what it shows is this impulsive, profane behavior of Esau. Treats so lightly and flippantly the most important thing in his life. He's the firstborn. He has the birthright. But he's going to give it away to Jacob for a bowl of soup. And so Jacob says in verse 33, swear to me now. Now, in other words, I swear on the grave of my mother that I will give you the birthright. I, I made that up. That's not in the Bible. But, I mean, he wants an oath. He wants this, that is Jacob, wants an oath. He wants this turned into a vow. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then there is a theological commentary on what just happened. Thus Esau despised his birthright, treated as worthless, the most important thing in his life. He's the firstborn. He deserves the birthright. There is the key to the character of Esau. What is really important is not important to him. 
Esau is a wild, free, boisterous, exciting man that people love to be around. He would go into the local pub at Beersheba, and everybody would flock around. I'm making this up, but would everybody would flock around him to hear his stories. Oh, he's a fun-loving, free, boisterous hunter. Let's hear his stories. But he's so self-absorbed, so self-indulgent, that what is really important in life, he treats flippantly, frivolously, treats as worthless what is really important. I would like to suggest to you that there are an awful lot of men in the United States that are just like Esau. What is really important, they could care less about. They're selfish, and, and I, it's very easy for me to fall into that category. Selfish, self-absorbed, self-indulgent. And all they care about is themselves. They don't care about their children. They really don't care about their wife. They really don't care. They gripe and complain, and all they look forward to is being able to plop down, play video games, or watch NASCAR races, go hunting. I'm not saying any of these things are not evil, but that becomes, and so what is really important, they treat for those. Doesn't matter. And so you really see the point here. Even though Jacob is conniving and duplicitous, and deceptive, and a manipulator. <coughs> he's got this, he's got Esau wrapped around his finger. But Jacob really understands what's important. Although he was promised it, he's going to get it his way. God's going to have to break him of that, and he will. So do you see, are you, are you with me here? I mean, this is, this, this, this story, this narrative about Esau and Jacob can really be applied to a lot of people's lives because that's one of the really significant problems of the human condition. What is really important, we treat in a flippant manner and focus on the things that are not really important. And so, uh, again, I, I chose men. as I could have chosen women, but I chose men because we're all men. You know, I think you know what I mean. There are a lot of guys. Their priorities are all out of whack. They're focusing on things and devoted to things and con focusing and wholeheartedly and enthusiastic and passionately on things that really don't matter. And ignoring the things that are really important in life. And that's really tragic. I've watched so many men like that. And it's, yet God is patient, God is gracious, and God will do everything he possibly can to reorder that man's priorities. Okay. Go, go things. Sure. That's why I'm, I'm aching to make a political commentary. But Don't, please. I, I, I want to keep politics out of the class. So, so, but it's theological, too. But, but my question is... <clears throat> Uh, <clears throat> Jacob had to have gained some confidence from this encounter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that even though Esau was easily duped, he did go on to lead a nation. Sure. 
And when we get to 32 of this book, chapter 32 of this book, you're going to see another dimension of Esau. And I'll just fast forward there. Jacob is absolutely terrified. He has been ordered by God to go back into the promised land. And he knows one thing. On the other side of the Jordan River is my brother. And I have stolen from him everything. And so a one of the people that Jacob had sent ahead said, Jacob, your brother Esau is coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. Wow. If you're Jacob, what are you thinking? But what you see is Esau welcoming his brother back into the promised land, hugging him, and doing everything he can to make his transition easy. So God changes Esau too. Do you think there was a seed of confidence in Esau as well? Because he did treat this most important thing flippantly. I'm thinking that, and I don't know how birthrights usually work, you know, if the oldest felt the responsibility for his siblings, to, you know, even though he highly titled everything, but take care of them. And, and perhaps Esau might have expected this type of thing and, and had confidence in himself to negotiate and survive anything? Uh, at this point in Esau's life, I think you're giving him just a little too much credit. No, I mean, I, I, at this, well, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not putting you down, Rob. What I mean is, I think he, I don't think, he isn't thinking about any of that. He's thinking one thing. I'm hungry, I'm exhausted, I want something to eat. Which is, you know, the self-absorbed, self-indulgent man. My focus is on my immediate need. And I'll do anything to meet that immediate need. I don't care. The effect on anybody else, I don't care. I just want that. I want that. There certainly is a lack of logic. I mean, even if oh, that's right. you say hyperbole is just a little bit, you really felt like, man, I had a tough day today, and, you know, maybe you got injured or something. Um, so, but if I, if I eat this, it's my key to survival. So there's there's a lack of logic, right? If I survive, I'll need it. If I don't survive, then I don't need it. Yeah. Well, you could certainly say this is not logical. <laughs> this is so impulsive. This is the impulsive, profane Esau, Parks Lawn. And as a young man, this is where he is. But Jacob's not. That's why that that, that Hebrew word that uh, we refer to uh, Isaac up there in verse twenty-seven. That Hebrew word that I mean, ESV translates quiet. Uh, I don't think that's a really good translation, but it, you even could say even-tempered. Jacob is much more secure in who he is and his priorities than so than Esau. Esau is in it. He's the typical wild, free, exciting man. Very impulsive. He thinks, he thinks about five minutes ahead. He's not a strategic thinker. He's not, whereas here's Jacob. He's deliberative. He's reflective. He's even tempered. But he's going to leverage all of that for duplicitous ends. So they're good character traits. But if they're used for evil ends, that's just as displeasing to the Lord as a free willed, boisterous, impulsive, profane man who does what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, and at any point that he wants. God is not pleased with either one. All right, now we're going to switch for just a moment in chapter 26 back to Isaac. Oh, I'm sorry, John, please. I don't want to get ahead, but yeah. what, what is he getting here when he's getting the birthright? 
Is, is that that's inherits everything? He's what? He inherits everything, he, he inherits and he is now the leader of the family. Okay. So later on, we're going to see, if I remember right, that he wants his father's blessing. That's right. Why would that be necessary? I mean, if he's if he's already leading the family, and, and <clears throat> what, what's the difference there? That's more uh, the the birthright idea is is a very legal. And today, as well as back then, it's a very legal um, uh, thing that involves, you know, you're head of the family now, you, you're the, you inherit the property, and in this case, inherit the covenant. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is all about covenant here. Whereas the blessing, the blessing is more of a Middle Eastern custom. It's kind of hard for us in, this, in, our, in our culture to think about that. But you, you want the blessing of your dad, and it was like what... Um, it's it's like what uh, uh, um, Jacob does to his sons in Genesis 20, uh, 49. It's what David does to Solomon. He blesses him. In other words, I am putting all the blessings that I have received from God onto you. You're not only succeeding me as the head of the family with the, the, the property and property that all goes with it and the covenant, you have my blessing as the Father. I'm passing on to you the blessing. And uh, again, God had chosen Jacob, so Jacob would get that. But Jacob's going to get the blessing of Isaac his way. Well, I'm guessing that Isaac, I mean, in, in, in looking at what Jacob did, stealing the heritage, so yes, speak, yes. Away, probably <clears throat> would not have given him the blessing. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> at some point, I mean, you're right. At some point, he would have because God said, you will be the one. That is Jacob. You're, to Rebecca, uh, your younger one is going to be the one that will, will, will pass on the covenant. He will be the heir, he, all that. But Jacob is doing it his way. And you're right, because of that, that character trait and temperament of Jacob and what he's done, Isaac would probably not have wanted to bless him at that point. And yet he does because of what Jacob does. Now, chapter 27, uh, we go back to Isaac. The, the Bible, uh, here in the book of Genesis, huh? Oh, what did I say? Oh, 26, I'm sorry. Whatever I said, I meant 26. So, um, here we see something that is is, is 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 an accurate statement. We really don't have much in the book of Genesis about Isaac. We really don't. Much greater material on Abraham, tremendous amount of material on Jacob, and then Isaac's in the middle. So, I mean, it's it, I don't know why, except I guess he gets the covenant, he passes the covenant, he'll pass it on Jacob. But chapter 26, it's kind of like history repeats itself. Once is a tragedy, second is a farce. I won't tell you who said that, because you will think less of me if I tell you who said that. Mm-hmm. Verse 20, chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. This has echoes of Genesis 12. Besides the former fam- famine that was in the days of Abraham. So it was Genesis 12. So there's the parallel now between Isaac's dad, Abraham, when he comes into the promised land, a tremendous famine hits Canaan. Where does Abraham go? Egypt. Egypt. 
So, a famine has hit the promised land again. What is Isaac going to do? So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And remember, we looked at this before because Gerar is over here right along the coast in what today would be the Gaza Strip, that, that area. And his father, that is Abraham, had been there. He had negotiated with Abimelech. Remember that? So that's where he goes. And Isaac went to Gerar, the Abimelech king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. <clears throat> Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. Now, I want you to notice what happens in verse 3 through verse 5. None of this is new material. I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. I will give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What is just again been summarized? The Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> so what God is doing is consciously, demonstrably, passing the covenant promise to Isaac. He wants Isaac to make sure he understands that he is the beneficiary of the covenant. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Because of your father's obedience to me, I made that covenant promise. So it isn't because Isaac's done it. It isn't because Isaac's such a good guy. It isn't because Isaac is virtuous. It isn't because Isaac merited this. God said, I will make a covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring. You're his offspring, I'm passing it on to you. And a while back, Jim mentioned the word grace. Here you see, listen, the real story in the book of Exodus, I mean, from 12 to 50, the real story isn't the patriarchs. It's the grace of God. It really is. Because every one of these men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, every one of these men had immense character flaws. There is no reason on earth God should give this kind of promise to these men. They failed him many, many times. They've let him down many, many times. They've outright defiantly disobeyed him many times. But God made a promise. And that promise involves the redemption of the human race. In you, through you, Abraham, all People will be blessed. And I am going to do that. So God's passing it on to, to Isaac. Not because he earned it. Not because he merited it. Not because he deserved it. Not because he's worth it. But because God is in control of the, the event. And God is establishing this covenant problem. And so we see again... <clears throat> Like father, like son. Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. He doesn't go down to Egypt. He settles there in the Philistine territory. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. That's exactly what Abraham said. And this is absolutely astonishing. Why? 
I'm getting excited here. I'm moving from teaching to preaching. Yeah. So it's it's staggering because God had just rehearsed again the covenant promises. He had just made all these promises. So instead of faith and trust governing Isaac's response, fear is governing Isaac's response. Fear mocks Faith and blessing. And so here you... the same doubt that Abraham had. Of course. Of Abraham. course. Of course. Same fear. But and I am not, because I would probably have done the same thing. But what I, it, it, this, is, this is the point we're supposed to see from this material, guys. Here is a man who, instead of having his focus on God and his trust in God, his focus is on the circumstances, and he's afraid. Now, that's not abnormal. That's not uncommon. But he's a patriarch. He's supposed to trust God. He saw all, remember, Isaac's the one who went up Mount Moriah with his dad. He's the one who saw God provide that animal, ram in the thicket as a substitute, remember, Jehovah Jireh. He had seen all these extraordinary things of God, and God just rehearsed again the promise. And so God, just like he did with Abraham many times, he tests Isaac. I don't want you to go down to Egypt. I want you to stay here with Abimelech. He knows you. He knows your dad. He's now dead, but he knows your dad. He has a relationship with you. You would think that Isaac would say, you know, this is a safe place. But these are Philistines. These aren't covenant people. So... The women, excuse me, the men of the community come up, and we are to assume the same things with her. Rebecca was beautiful. Rebecca must have been a very attractive woman. And so they they want to ask, hey, is, is this is this guy available? Who is she? Oh, she's my sister. Didn't she have the ring in her nose that we talked about earlier? That's a great question. Uh, I you know I I don't I I can't answer that. The text doesn't tell us here whether that was permanent or temporary. Yeah, maybe it's removable. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> For he feared to say my wife. Maybe she was so pretty it didn't matter to them. Or maybe they didn't understand that custom. I mean, there, there are so many. We just It, it, it is apparently not important because the text doesn't tell us. The emphasis is on how Isaac responds to this test. Thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When he bear a long time, we don't know what that means. Days, weeks, months. But remember, God sojourned there. Stay there. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, I don't know if you're all translations have Isaac laughing. There, there are different ways to translate. Caressing. Caressing. That's, that's a better translation. It, listen, it is literally in the Hebrew, it's laugh. But remember, what does Isaac mean? Huh? It's not laughter. Laugh. Remember, he was named Isaac because Sarah laughed. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Isaac, as a proper name, means laugh. So you could try, that's why it's a, it's a word play. The one who's called laugh is laughing. It's now a verb, which correctly does mean a gesture of intimacy. 
a gesture of affection. And so that whatever translation you guys have, it translates that caressing, really captures. Because there's no way Abimelech is going to look out and he sees Rebecca and Isaac laughing about a joke. Well, so what? But that's not what it is. Here's the laughing one, laughingly, affectionately caressing Rebecca. So what he saw was the typical ancient Near Eastern evidences of intimacy between a man and a woman, or literally a husband and wife. So, I mean, he's looking, and this is what he sees. So if the wordplay there is really cool in the Hebrew. The one who's called laugh is laughingly, affectionately caressing Rebecca. Translation actually says sporting. Sporting? Sporting. S-P-O-R. Oh, really? That's interesting. Huh? That's really, that's, that's really an Americanism. I mean, it real, I mean, and, and it's good. I mean, it really, it's a very good way to, to paraphrase and capture it because it's, uh, it's just so unusual because in there, what the ESV is doing is just literally saying laughing, but it, that doesn't capture it for anybody. Uh, yes. Mine's got to make love. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Straight up. And I don't know exactly what that means, but, it, <laughs> but you know. So let's just leave that lying on the table and look at verse 9. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, This is almost exactly what he has said to Abraham earlier. What is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, this is very important, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Okay. Now I want you to think with me about this at another level. First of all, Abimelech comes off with a much better light than Isaac does. Secondly, Abimelech is much more concerned about the care of Rebekah, quite frankly, than Isaac was. And third, here again you see the providence of God protecting Rebekah. I mean, it all kinds of circumstances could work themselves out here. But God, using Abimelech, who really comes off more righteous than Isaac does here, because God protects marriage. God is protecting the marriage of his covenant line. Because remember, this is the covenant line. The Messiah is going to come from this line. And so God is, is, you're going to see this, you will see this throughout the whole Old Testament where God is protecting that line. God's saying, man, if I don't intervene here, these guys are going to miss this. That's exactly right. That's a good way to put it, Woody. If I do not intervene, they they are going to pollute the line. And my son is going to come from this. So God will guard it and God will protect it. So what we see in chapter 26, 12, and it's really through the end of the chapter, is the amazing way in which God blesses Isaac. Because he earned it? Because he merited it? No. He is the covenant son 
through which the covenant is going to pass and God's going to bless him. Not because he earned it, not because he merited it, not because he deserved it, but God is going to bless him. It's evidence again of God's grace. And so, I mean, we can read this fairly quickly, but it's really fascinating because the story here revolves around wells. Because remember, the wealth of Isaac, as with the wealth of his father Abraham, is in herds. It's in animals. It's the sheep and the goats and the camels and all that. And they all take a lot of water. So you have to have wells. So what happened? Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man, meaning Isaac, became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. His possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Remember, Isaac has moved from Beersheba area over to Gerar, right along near the coast, and he's farming and he's herding and everything he's doing, God is just blessing. Presumably, way beyond anything the Philistines are experiencing. And so they become envious. So what do they do? Verse 15, now the Philistines stopped and filled the earth all the well, with all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. I mean, literally what they're doing is they're, because, you know, you don't think of a well today where you have this big mechanism that drills deep down, put casements all around it. They dug literally with shovels. So all they're doing is caving in the walls of the well. You can't use them anymore. Okay, now what happened? And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Their envy is turning into fear of Isaac. And so they're now doing things their way. They're taking the known hit. So the second stage is verse 17 and 18. So Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar. He moves out of the community into the valley and settled there. Isaac dug again wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names of his father and given them. Okay, he moves to another area. What happens? Digs more wells. Very successful. God's blessing. Verse 19, but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, this water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac because they contended with him. It's a Hebrew name. It's a Hebrew label where they're contending. They're fighting. So what does Isaac do? Next step. Then they dug, well, another well, and they quarreled over that. He called that Shitna, which means enmity or hatred or their enemies. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So you have five stages of wells here. And finally, he's moving farther and farther away from Gerar. He calls this name Rehoboth, which means, it's really hard, a, a, a good place, a place of lots of room, a place of broad rooms. For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So no matter what opposition Isaac finds himself in, God always provides. Now he's far enough away from Gerar, and God is blessing him. And from there he went up to Beersheba. He goes back to the hometown. Now he goes back to that town that Abraham had settled in, and you know where that is on your map there. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God 
of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I'm with you, will bless you, will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he, meaning Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there his servants don't go well. He's back to Beersheba. The famine is over. He's back to the home community, so to speak. And God says, stay here. I'm the God of your dad. I will bless you. So this chapter is about the same kind of, same kind of character issues that you see. Is Isaac going to trust or is they, in the Lord, or is Isaac going to trust in his own resources? Is he going to focus on the circumstances, or is he going to focus on God? He watches God take care of him with Abimelech, so he's back to trusting God. Every time he faces a crisis, he moves on. Okay, God, you got to take care of me. Okay, ends up back in Beersheba, and God says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. I will bless you. So what happens, we're going to, I didn't think we'd do this. We are going to do this. It's great. When Abimelech, verse 26, went to him from Gerard to Ahuzah, his advisor, and Fico, his commander of his army, Isaac said to him, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? Verse 26, sorry, 28. We can plainly see that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant together that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done no, and done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed to the Lord. Okay, what is Abimelech and his people recognizing? The blessing of the Lord, of Yahweh. That's the name for God there. The blessing of Yahweh is upon him. So they make a new treaty with him. Just like they made a treaty with his father, they make a treaty with him. So now Isaac is where his father was, a man of wealth, a man of position, and a man who's recognized by everyone around him. The hand of God is upon Isaac. The covenant has been passed from Abraham to Isaac. He knows it, and everybody around him knows it. Now the next issue is Jacob. Because we see how God dealt with daddy Isaac. Now what about Jacob? And we're introduced, because there's a false chapter break here, verse 34 of chapter 26 really belongs with chapter 27. Because now we shift from Isaac, the covenant established with him again in the blessing of God. Isaac, Esau is 40 years old, and he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basmeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life, this made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Um, what's the matter with the wives Esau took? One tribe, one God's. They are not, they're not like Rebecca was. These are Hittites. Did you see that? These are Canaanite people. Esau has taken Canaanite wives. That's why it says Isaac and Rebecca, it made life bitter for them. This is hard to see their son marry out 
outside the covenant. Doesn't tell us why, doesn't tell us anything about them except they're Hittites. Yes, he has taken two wives. And this was, is this prior to the blessing that would have been transferred? Or? Yes. Yes. The blessing is the next chapter. Or put it this way. The next chapter is where Isaac, or Jacob, steals the blessing from Isaac. When Andrew. You were, when you were explaining the meaning of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, would you say it's fair to say that when you say God rejected Esau, um, that 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 you know, train tracks you talk about were there. Yes. The responsibility. God rejected Esau because Esau first rejected God. Yes. Yes. And he, he, you see the evidence of that and how he treated the, the the whole birthright idea and all that went with that in the ancient Near Eastern world. And now you see it here again. He is not taking seriously this responsibility of marriage. Two things. He marries a Canaanite and he takes two wives. Abraham had two wives, but he married them after Sarah died. He had took to Keturah. He's not a, poly, he's not a um, polygamist. But Esau chooses to be a bigamist. So he's violating two dimensions of this covenantal relationship. He despises this. And so now we're going to see chapter 30, chapter 27, rather, is back to Jacob. Now we're back to Jacob. And we're just going to see this. what follows is just a series of very significant narratives. Because let me tell you the big story. I have 32 seconds. The neat part of the narrative is then he deceives Isaac and gets the blessing and all that. And Esau is really angry about this. And so you might, Rebecca says, hey, Jake, you got to get out of here. And so he sends him way, way up to Laban. Remember, Laban was the guy that Eliezer had gone to Laban to get Rebekah. So he goes to Laban. And the manipulator and conniver and duplicitous one meets his match. <laughs> and Laban is more duplicitous, more conniving, and more manipulating than Jacob. It's a great story. Wow. So we'll be, that's, the next couple chapters are about that. So it's, uh, you're really getting a focus on the character and temperament of Jacob. The next covenant God. It's funny, Esau married somebody that had the characteristics of his brother. <laughs> yeah, I wish we knew more about Judas, but maybe he did. I don't know. My sense is he may have, uh, he may have intentionally married someone that was the total opposite of Rebecca, his mother. I don't know. But yeah. Let me pray here. Lord, we're thankful for the word of God that we can study and think about and apply and discuss. Uh, this is such an important book the book of Genesis to study. It just is the story of your relentless, um, remarkable grace. None of these patriarchs deserve the blessing, but you continue to march forward with the covenant blessing which you promised. And regardless of these men with their character flaws, you keep bringing them back, keep patiently dealing with them, patiently correcting, patiently breaking them, so that they can be the kind of men you want them to be. And we're going to see this with Jacob. Jacob is, has huge issues. God is going to have to break him of this to be the kind of blessing he wants him to be. So it's the value of a study like this, because I think we can all see ourselves in some of these patriarchs. 
and, and individuals like Esau and so on. Thank you for your grace. We don't deserve anything, but you offer us everything in Jesus. And for that, we give you praise. Watch over these men as they go their separate ways and their work and all their other responsibilities. May they represent you well in all they do in St. Jesus' name. Amen. 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 See you next week.